Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hi, this is James Kandasamy. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate you. I know I provide a lot of value through this podcast and I want you to share it with your friends, with your families and anybody else that you know that kind of benefit from listening to this kind of content. Go share it through Facebook, into LinkedIn, through Twitter, through Instagram or any other channels that you want to share it because sharing is caring. Thank you. Let's go on with the show. Hi, webinar attendees. This is James Kandasamy from Achieve Investment Group. Today, we have Casey Conway, who's going to be talking about commercial real estate outlook. This is going to be a webinar, and also we're going to do a podcast format as well. If you have any questions, please make sure that you put in into the Q&A section of the Zoom tool over here. So let me get started. I just want to quickly introduce myself and after that, go to the next stage of uh, Casey's presentation. So we are Chief Investment Group. We are a vertically integrated team in San Antonio and Austin, and we are focusing a lot on buying apartments, which is primarily class B and C. I focus a lot on acquisition and investor relationship, and my wife here, Shanti James, focuses a lot on the property and construction management. We have more than $130 million in asset under management, 1,700 units, nine apartments. Uh, I'm also the author of best-selling book, Passive Investing in Commercial Real Estate, which has sold more than 2,000 copies after launching in the past 12 months, uh, was mentioned top 15 real estate investing book by Jim Kramer's The Street. And uh, I didn't pay for pay for that. It, it, it just came out randomly. So that's a good uh, review given to me by, you know, by one of the established and, and famous channel like The Street, right? So uh, I also have my own podcast. It's called Achieve Wealth Through Value at Real Estate Investing Podcast. And we have multifamily investors group in Facebook, which has almost uh, 5,500 members in the past uh, 14 months. And if you want to connect with us, just text ACHIEVE to 38470 to connect with us. And you know, you'll be able to come into our newsletter investors and distribution list. All right, Casey, I'm going to pass this to, to you. All right. So, uh, so James, that's a pretty good endorsement. You get a shout out from uh, James Kramer. I love him. I watch him a lot. So that's, that's, uh, that's high praise. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. You're a surprise, but that's good. Yeah. And so your wife, if she's dealing with the construction management issue, she's doing the hard work. (laughs) (laughs) Property management and construction. Yeah. You know, I'm doing the easy one. Yeah. She's, she's, she's doing the, uh, the harder part of the work. Yes. That's great. You got a good, got a good team there. So really um, pleased to be with here with you tonight. And uh, I'm in, I'm in Atlanta. Some of those who may have been listening early on, it's I think 96 and, and about 90% humidity today here. So it is, it is a miserable. We have the, mis- they have a misery index. It's just miserable. <laughs> I grew up in Colorado. We didn't have a miserable day in the summer. It was always nice. So uh, I love your, uh, love your Austin, San Antonio marks. I love San Antonio. I did a logistics uh, presentation webinar earlier this week and I talked about the port of San Antonio and people did not have a clue what I was talking about. And I, when I, when I educated him on the port of San Antonio, it's really the kind of the cybersecurity uh, epicenter for all of our ports and logistics. Uh, they dialed in a little bit. So I educated a few on the port of San Antonio this week. <laughs> hmm. Okay. 
That's so anyway, so my background, I grew up in Colorado, uh, been in Atlanta about 40 years, uh, came down here to go to business school at Emory University, started out on the appraisal track at my MAI and realized um, nobody believed the number in an appraisal, <laughs> but, I, but I knew how to manipulate cash flows and value. So I was off to the races to do CRE finance. <laughs> so I, I worked... And, and yeah. just a reminder to the listeners and audience, you know, if you have any questions, please use the Q&A box down there to answer. And we will answer questions as we move towards the slides and we'll answer at the end as well. So, so I've, I've done a different I've been appraisal. I've done uh, asset management, worked for equitable real estate, the old equitable and prudential and um, done, done banking. I uh, was in the Fed 2005 to 10, the last real nightmare. Um, I was at the New York Fed 2009 and 10. I am so glad I'm not in the Federal Reserve this time around. It was terrible then. I can't imagine what it is right now. But I, I did, I briefed Chairman Bernanke and helped be involved in a lot of the policy that was eventually developed like TARP and TALF and what to do with AIG. So I'll give you some interesting perspectives. So the last three years, I uh, have kind of had a number of hats I wear. I joined the University of Alabama and their commercial real estate center with a really cool name, ACRE, a unit of land measurement, uh, Alabama Center for Real Estate. I'm also the CCIM's chief economist. I value that relationship tremendously. I think the CCIM Institute really is crushing it in terms of education and, and really bringing education and the relationship side to it. And then I also sit on the board of directors. I'm an independent director for a public REIT in uh, the New York region. It's called Monmouth. And we are, all we do is logistics and big warehouses. Our primary tenant in over half our buildings is a little company known as FedEx. So I really get to practice um, logistics every <laughs> every month and what we're doing. So um, it's not just theory to me, it's, it's real life. And then I do a lot of expert witness work, um, particularly in property tax appeals. So a lot of big retail companies and, and whatnot. So that's what I do to keep busy. I have kids five or ten to ten to twenty five. So uh, only my only my young son is happy that I'm home. My daughters and my wife think I ask too many questions and have become too aware of what's going on in the in the family world. So they want me to get back on the road. So that's my background. I'll advance here. On to the uh, second slide is just my disclaimer. This is to protect you, uh, James, and your wife, Shanti. So these are all my crazy thoughts and ideas. And uh, so if I say something offensive, uh, I'll, uh, we'll figure out how to do the uh, virtual version of my, uh, of my square and give you my $100 net worth that I have after the kids, <laughs> after the kids have raided all, all the checking and, and oh. savings accounts. So there's your protection there. Thank you. Uh, a lot of content, I produce a lot each week. If we're, any of your audience members are not connected with me on LinkedIn, please send me an invite and I'll accept it. Um, but a lot of this stuff I produce is on our university website. So here's the link to it. I do a weekly insight on Wednesday of each week. Um, these are pretty in-depth things, two to 3,000 words on something very topical. Um, I'll never tell you what I'm barbecuing or who's coming over to the house or the pool. Uh, it's all pretty good, serious stuff. So here, here's the link in the weekly insight. The one I posted here on the right is the one I call the other L&T industry, leisure and travel instead of logistics and transportation. Because um, you'll you'll see it's the one I'm the most concerned about of all the property types, and I think you're going to do just fine in multifamily. So that that's a prelude to the conclusion. It'll be okay. <laughs> you'll be fine. I always have a reading recommendation. So the dean gets mad if I don't give a reading recommendation. Anything I do, so I always have something fun. So I have to I have to get um, permission to get a 
your book and, and cover it, read it and get a cover on here. Um, but this one's called Whatever Happened to Penny Candy. It's a great, short, uh, logical, layperson explanation of economics. And I think we all need to get tuned up on economics because every metric that we thought we knew or we relied on has been turned upside down. And there are going to be many new metrics that tell us where we're headed. My favorite chapter in the book is chapter two. It's titled with the acronym TANSTAFFEL. That stands for there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. I sent 100 copies to the bank regulators, the Fed and FDIC and OCC this week when I did my quarterly briefing on CRE conditions because uh, I think the Fed needs to know there ain't no such thing as a free lunch with all of the expansion of their balance sheet they're doing. Remember, the Fed doesn't produce or sell anything. They just call Treasury and say, please print money. So we are greatly um, devaluing the dollar, expanding the money supply, and there will be a day of reckoning for that. So here's your light reading that won't won't make you stay up all night with nightmares. All right. The big question we all want answered is it was, you know, when we in May, it was, are we there yet? Because we we're opening up the states and I've changed it to when will we be there? Because we're nowhere close to being there. I'm 58. I grew up in an era when families would go on vacation. We, we piled all the kids into what was the precursor to the minivan that was a a family station wagon with phony wood paneling. <laughs> and as us kids were never told where we were going or how long it was going to take, we would bug mom and dad by asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? <laughs> so I thought that'd be a, a good analogy here. So back in the early part of June, over a month ago, we knew we weren't there when the Dow had its biggest drop of 1,800 points to over 7%. Then less than a week later, we got that great retail sales report where it went up an all-time record in one month, 17% in May. Um, June was up another 7%. Uh, but now we're dealing with the reality that the state reopening is not probably gone as well as we had hoped. We've got COVID completely out of control in this country. We're setting new daily record counts. You guys know about it in Texas. I spoke with a group in Houston, uh, the Fort Bend Economic Development Council, I think the end of last week, and, and we talked about what's going on in Houston. And then we got the jobless claims uh, today, and they reversed course. We were at least heading down, still well above a million, but they went up from a million three to a million four today. So when we look at what's happening in terms of company layoffs and whatnot, ignore the jobs report, look at the forward indicators like job cuts and jobless claims, and they're not telling us that we're anywhere close to being there yet. So let's start with the COVID cases. The website I'd recommend y'all follow is the John Hopkins University. It has no politics in it. They really collect the data, visualize it, graph it. So you can see, um, I pulled these, I think this morning, um, James, we were over 15 million cases globally. To put that in perspective, the 1st of April, we only had 900,000 cases globally. So this is a 15 times increase in about four months. Um, we have more cases than anybody in the world. We have 25% of the world's cases. Um, I believe we did top 4 million cases today. We're adding about 70,000 a day. And the reason I bring this up is because the COVID cases really are connected to the economic reopening bone, which is connected to the stressed commercial real estate bone. So if you look at the state rankings... Um, Casey, I just want to uh, quickly inject a yeah. question because I know this is in everybody's mind. Do you think it's because of testing? Well, it's part. We are we are testing more people, but when you look at um, the, the density ratio in terms of the testing, it's clear we, we have more that actually have the cases. It's not just the testing count, but it is the actual density. The mortality rate is not bad. It's a whole lot worse than we thought. When we first started this thing out, we thought it was 3 or 4%. 
I think the latest numbers I saw were it's it's, it's below half of one percent. So maybe it's uh you know maybe we've killed off all the weak, <laughs> and it's just the strong youth that are left and they're not dying. Um, but testing is a part of it, but it's more than that. We we really the virus didn't abate. We don't have a vaccine. We're better at treating the disease. So not as many are having as severe conditions. We catch it earlier. The testing allows us to catch it earlier so we can intervene with treatment and we don't have as much mortality. So, but we still don't have it under control. When the CDC after the 4th of July said, look at shelter in place is a genie that we can't put back in the bottle. This, the virus is out of control. And until we get a virus, um, we're really not going to get this under control or we're just going to have to go for herd immunity, which is put the 20% that are vulnerable away and let the 80% get it. And I think they took that to heart in Alabama. I, I have not been back over in a few months, but um, uh, my, my daughter was telling me that they were having COVID-19 parties at the University of Alabama and in, in some of the kids that were on campus for the summer. And uh, whoever got it first uh, won the pot of money. It's absolutely crazy stuff. But Anyway, good question. I think it's important to look at the state rankings. California just surpassed New York with the most number of cases. So when you look at the significance of the California economy and its importance in logistics and the ports of LA and Long Beach, uh, the importance of wine from the Napa Valley, it's, it's going to be a big deal. The states that are now in the top 10 or 15 weren't even in the top 20 a month ago. Florida, Texas, Georgia, Arizona, North Carolina, they have all risen very, very rapidly. So the, the reason I point this out is this is really going to affect reopening the economy, what plays out in this new stimulus bill if Congress can get their act together before August 7th and actually pass something. So it'll really direct a lot of what we've got there. But we do not have it under control. And so I start there until we see it under control, until we have a vaccine, until we really bend this group. We want to look like Hawaii over there on the left. And you look at the states that have the lowest counts. If you want to go on vacation this summer, go to Montana, Wyoming, Alaska, Hawaii, or Vermont. It's, it's safe. Nobody will give you COVID there. But you'll probably give it to them. <laughs> so they're probably unhappy I just said that. All right. Next slide, I want to talk about the jobs reports because we had what I call the Humpty Dumpty jobs report in April. It was the worst ever. 20 million people reported unemployed, lost their jobs. And then May, it came charging back. In June, we were up 4.8 million jobs. What in the world? If you look at the charts over there on the right between employment and unemployment, job loss, these charts just are anomalies. It's a true definition of what a tail looks like in terms of tail risk. Here's what you need to know about the jobs numbers. The first is in March with the CARES bill, we did something we never did in employment and unemployment. We allowed 1099 workers and um, sole proprietors to apply for unemployment and be counted. And so that's why the number went up so much in April. We added 20, 30 million people that we had never counted. Well, then in May, when they went to apply to continue their benefits in June, they weren't able, those 1099 workers and sole proprietors were busy trying to keep their little business going or finding another contractor job that they didn't fill out their worksheets showing they were actively uh, interviewing for jobs in May. So the BLS said, up. Oh, you're out of here. You're not in the workforce. You didn't do your job. You didn't look for a job. So they removed 9 million people in May and about the same number in June. And so they don't know what they're counting. And the in the CARES bill, what it did is it's caused such distortion that these government job numbers really make no sense at all. So hopefully that gives a little perspective. So what do I look at for job numbers? So I look at things like job cuts and some of the headlines. So I look at the, on the right there, the challenger gray job cuts number. 
Every month they produce this. They've told us that we've cut a million four people. These have not been encountered in the BLS numbers because they're still receiving some sort of benefit or haven't actually been cut, so they can't apply for unemployment. And if we look on the left side there, we can see companies, whether it's United Airlines or Delta or Southwest, they're all sending out what are called WARN notices. And these are required as part of the CARES bill that companies like airlines that got financial support committed to keeping their employees on through September. They have to give them 60 days notice if they don't plan to keep them on beyond September. So they're starting to give employees those numbers. They're asking for voluntary separations. And if CARES bill isn't extended or Congress works something out, you are going to see more bankruptcies and more job cuts than we've ever seen in this country's history. Um, All of the airlines will probably file bankruptcy in October. Um, They're not going to take another government bailout. They're not going to surrender ownership of the company. They're not going to allow the government to be on boards of directors like um, Lufthansa did to the German government. Uh, They're going to use bankruptcy to discharge contracts, plane orders, gate contracts, labor contracts, and more importantly, route structures, contracts where they got to still fly. So already Southwest CEO was on today and Alaska Air. Alaska Air has already cut over half of its route structure. So if you're a secondary city, you really need to be concerned about this because now instead of having daily flights, you only have maybe two or three times a week or once a week. This could have real economic um, impacts to you. So I'm looking at the forward-looking thing. Casey, I have a question. Yeah. So you said you're predicting by October, a lot of airlines will be asking for what you call a yep. chapter seven, chapter 11 chapter bankruptcy. Seven bankruptcy. Okay. Yeah. I, I didn't, I thought I didn't hear that correctly. And, and you are saying also some of the secondary cities where some of the airlines are changing their routes, is going to be impacted, I guess. Right. So that's going to be impacting the commercial real estate in that city as well. Yeah, so I think Texas, you'll be okay. Austin's very important, very important tech route structure between uh-huh. uh, Silicon Valley and technology. San Antonio, the the military, the port of San Antonio, a lot of government. Uh-huh. Dallas and Houston, obviously, will stay fine. You got Southwest headquartered. You'll, you'll see my comments on Southwest in a minute. But you look at cities like a St. Louis, Missouri, or a Kansas City, you know, or even in, in where or the university is, Alabama, in Birmingham. These uh-huh. are cities where there may not be anywhere near the demand where these major airlines cut service. And that could have Michigan and Ohio. I think there's one question coming from the audience. Yeah, I think Ohio in particular, I think Columbus will be okay. It's such an important logistics market, but I think Cleveland is, is, is vulnerable. Um, Detroit, uh, is a question mark, uh, who's going to service, uh, and and you got a great airport there in Detroit. So a lot of the Midwest is going to be impacted, I think very much in secondary cities in the Southeast. In addition, I look at, so here's next slide. I've got, you know, Deltas. Here's their grim outlook. You'll see on the right, I've got Southwest. The red arrow there on the lower right, I've got of all the airlines that are going to be the first to recover and do the best, it's going to be Southwest. They carry the least debt load. They're second only to Delta in the most amount of cash reserves. They fly mostly domestic. International is devastated. And with us having more cases in the world, nobody in the rest of the world wants anybody from America to come visit them. So uh, airlines like American and United and Delta that do a lot of international under more stress than say a Southwest. So I'm most bullish on Southwest. Um, They're all going to go through a lot. American Airlines, I think, is the most vulnerable. They're the most leveraged. Uh, People forget that last year they did massive um, debt that they took on to modernize their fleet and order and buy all these new planes. And now they don't need them to fly. Um, So they got a new modern fleet. It's just not flying. So this is just one example, kind of my thoughts on the airlines. And then think of the ripple effects from the airline. We've already seen a little bit of it from the rental car companies like 
like Hertz filing bankruptcy. Think of all the ancillary businesses around an airport, the hotels, the convention centers, um, you know, the vendors, the restaurants, all of that stuff uh, go through a ripple effect here um, from what happens to these airlines. All right. So if you ask me, James, all right, here's, a, here's your key up question. So Casey, just tell me four things to follow. I can't follow five or 10 or 20. What are the four metrics you're following that will think that you think will tell us the most of what's going on? So here they are on slide 10. My number one metric is the TSA passenger count. So here's what it looks like on slide 11. The TSA keeps a count of how many of us are flying every day. A year ago, the summer, we were seeing two and a half to 2.7 million people fly a day through our airports. And we're seeing that only recover to about five to 700,000. In April, these numbers collapsed to 85,000. So airlines need people flying between about million five and a million eight to break even. And they need over two million to be profitable. So we have a long, long way to go. I think the trajectory, the pace that Business travelers come back and the airlines will tell us how the economy is doing. I'm a, I'm a proxy for this. So I did 80 to 100 trips a year. I'd fly every week. I did 20 trips in February. And I have not flown since the first week of March. Uh, multiply me by a few hundred thousand, maybe a couple million people, business travelers, and you can understand the impact on the airlines, the hotels. Think of the bonds at the airports, the convention centers, uh, the venues, uh, all of that type stuff. So that's number one. If you really want to see how we're doing, look at the recovery in the TSA passenger count. If it's not get to near a million and a half by the holidays, we're in a lot of trouble. The second one, Look at LTSS, and that stands for Loans Transferred to Special Servicers. So TREP follows this for all the permanent loan loans, uh, commercial real estate loans in the CMBS world. It's a good proxy for the banks and what's coming at them. And what you can see in the lower left is that industrial multifamily are okay. They're less than 2%. So you're doing great, James. You're in the right property type. Look at lodging. Over 16% have already been transferred. And then look at the upper right in terms of what's delinquent. Almost 25% of all lodging loans are already delinquent. And 16% have already, they've given up and transferred to special servicers. So we're not even to the workout and foreclosure stage. These are really dire numbers. And you look at retail, 18% delinquent, 9% transferred. You can begin to see where the stress is going to come. And I think uh, into the fall of next year, it's going to be really, really bad. I don't think we're going to see recovery in lodging or retail for a long, long time. Just not Are you going to be, uh, what about the notion of the government is still supporting the people by, you know, paying the unemployment and the stimulus check for multifamily? How much yeah, do you so, think that impacted? Yeah, we'll get we'll get to the rent forbearance in a minute, and it's having yeah, a big yeah. impact. It's kind of a lot of them have used the term, you know, the 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 Fed and the FHFA built a bridge. Um, the problem is they didn't measure the width of the river, <laughs> and we need a lot more than three months or six months. We're probably going to need a year or more uh, to really make it a difference. But I'll explain why it'll be okay for you, multifamily here in just a second. So, okay. uh, loans transferred to special servicers. This is a a very good piece. This is one of the best pieces of news I could share with you about commercial real estate finance. So when I was at the Fed 2005 to 10 and I was briefing Bernanke and the Board of Governors on how much TARP money was going to be needed and what were we going to have to do with the banks, we had then 70 to 85% of all commercial real estate was in the banks or in CMBS. And CMBS shut down in 2009 and we had a real problem and that's why we created TARP and TALF. Well, here's what's positive that happened since um, the financial crisis, the 2009 one, is that this this graphic shows 
the, the bars um, going down the left side um, are the different lending sources from CMBS at the top to regional banks at the bottom. And the color of the bars represent the property type. And let's look at hotel, for example. So it's the most distressed property type, but no one debt source has really more than about 10 to 15 percent of that debt. And what that means is that each of these debt sources probably have the bandwidth to work through hotel and not have it bring them completely down like it did, you know, commercial real estate did shutting down CMBS and the banks last time. So you look at uh, apartments there in terms of the uh, medium orange, look at the one with the red arrow, government agency. This will blow your mind, James. 93 percent of all apartment um, loans in this country have a GSC, a Freddie or Fannie loan. So if you wonder why the Fed intervened right away and the government controls FHFA, they can do anything they want with this property type. And they can tell the borrowers and owners of multifamily that have a Freddie or Fannie loan that they're not going to evict and they're going to and they're going to offer rent forbearance. And what they'll do is they'll give these borrowers loan forbearance. And so multifamily isn't going to collapse. The government controls it and 93% of the debt. They're going to they're going to take care of it. Nothing bad is going to happen there. <laughs> that's good. That's good. So you're, that, that's your uh, that's your good news for the night. All right. Another one I look at is so we've done um, uh, TSA, we've done LTSS. Now we're going to look at um, commercial real estate transactions, and you can see CoStar shows that they've fallen by 24 percent. But I really look at the real capitalytics data. My friend Jim Costello. You can look at the chart on the lower left with the red arrow. You can see how far commercial real estate transactions have fallen. The good news is industrial multifamily are still transacting. You can still find borrowers. There's institutional money. There's life company money. There's uh, Freddie and Fannie money. But when you get down to hotel and retail, not so much. To show you how bad it is in hotel in the month of May, there were only 10 hotel transactions in the entire country. That's the lowest amount in any month ever since they've been tracking data. Um, so it's, you can just see it's totally locked up on, on the hotel side. But here's a piece of encouraging news. Some of you may be familiar, your audience members with NAOP. They're a very good organization. They just published a report from serving all of its members. And what they found is that transaction activity, that second item in those bars on the left, industrial office of multifamily, it's rebuilding. And in fact, in June, uh, transaction activity, acquisitions, of industrial office and multifamily was the best it's been since really going back to February. So that's encouraging. So if you want to feel good, read the NAOP data, put it in your loan packages and don't put the real capitalytics data. <laughs> it'll, it'll, bring the, it'll bring the lender down. All right. Another piece of this on the transactions activity that's going to give a lot of people indigestion is you're going to have to get an appraisal at some point. And they're really messy. And if there's not a lot of transactions, how do you value the property? Well, I go back in my career to my equitable real estate days and the oil patch days in Denver and Houston in the late 1980s, and there were no sales, there was no market. And what we did for our life company clients at Equitable was we used what we called a market correction factor in our discounted cash flow. And we said, okay, the market's nothing for two years, then it recovers for two years, and then it gets back to normal in the last half of the cash flow. And when we did the present value of that, we found we only lost maybe 40 or 50% of the value instead of 70 to 80%. So I think we're going to see that we're going to have to adopt market correction factors for a lot of markets where there's limited transaction activity. Well, then people ask, well, where's my support for my adjustments and my factors in the DCF? And the answer is public earnings. 
the, the information you can grab out of these public earnings reports, I cover them extensively. And um, this is gonna be your support for the lenders. I just did a briefing on this to the bank regulators this week, um, two days of it. And I'll show you what that looks like. So for quarter one, I did a nationwide um, town hall with CCM Global President, Eddie Blanton. Here's the YouTube link and the slides links where we went over the Q1 earnings. I'm gonna do a similar one on Q2. Uh, probably in September that we'll, I'll be glad to send to you, James. And here's the key thing I want you to know from, from that um, town hall webinar. The red arrow on the lower left, every ratio that we thought was correct and we were accustomed to using in commercial real estate is turned upside down. What are density ratios for restaurants and hotel and what are occupancy costs and what are you know expense ratios? They're all turned upside down. And some of the things I pull out of these earnings reports I use up there in the second bullet um, container store. So their CEO shared in his Q1 earnings, you know, they closed 50 of their 100 stores. And in deciding what they're going to reopen, the only stores they're reopening are ones where they can do click it and pick up. So if they were in an inline in a shopping center where they didn't have any ability to do drive through lanes to do curbside pickup, they're not reopening. They're not going to lease new stores. Um, they're going to they're gonna leave those permanent closed. So click it and pick up is going to be an important site selection feature in leasing and acquisition. So if you're buying or trading retail centers and looking at tenants, um, look at even in grocery stores. We're seeing grocery stores take out as much as 25% of their parking and they're having to go in for a zoning variance because now they're eliminating 25% of their parking and they're re removing it because 30% of their sales are online and they need safe kind of serpentine drive-through lanes like at a Chick-fil-A to pick up the curbside their groceries. So we're going to see this be a, a big impactful thing, but every ratio you thought you knew is, is going to be turned upside down. This is a piece I did just recently on preparing for Q2 earnings. You all recognize that the stock market is way ahead of the economy. In fact, if you were just watching the stock market and came down from Mars, uh, you wouldn't know that there's anything called COVID. Um, I think what Q2 earnings are gonna reveal here is that the quote there with the red arrow on the left, that we have a $10 trillion rally, that's what we've seen, that is hinged on earnings that nobody has a clue about. 80% of the S&P 500 companies don't give forward guidance anymore. So we're kind of left in the dark as to what's going on. So I really think following the earnings is gonna be important to you. But um, you can read that piece there on my, my thoughts and you'll see how correct I am when I, when I do my uh, forensics in September. All right, so for commercial real estate, maybe we'll pause here, James, is this is a graphic I put together and I used extensively at the New York Fed in 2009 and 10, when the Fed was trying to figure out how bad would the housing and financial crisis be to commercial real estate. And Chairman Bernanke and the Board of Governors wanted to know how much money do we have to put in the banks? How big is the problem going to be? Can you quantify it? So we looked at commercial real estate. And if you really think about the cap rate at the top and the NOI on the left, that if cap rates go up and NOI goes down, that's your worst case. That's what happened in 2000, really 2006 to 2009. Uh, we lost um, really between 2008, 2012, the lower right corner, we lost 40% of commercial real estate value. Cap rates went up right away 200 basis points because we had a liquidity crisis. We had CMBS shut down, there was no debt lending, the Fed didn't lower rates, uh, they didn't do the intervention like they did this time. 
And then over the next three years, we saw the NOI decline from rising vacancies, less absorption, lower rents. This time around, I think we see something that's muted. It's more in the 20 to 25% range, a lot less for multifamily and industrial, maybe only 5 to 10%, and really severe for hotel and retail, maybe 60, 70, 80%. And so um, that's what I'm thinking. And if you think about this grid and apply it to your market and to your property types, because it can be different, Austin and San Antonio are going to be incredibly different than, say, New York or Chicago. Um, uh, so think about this, and, and this is a great discussion starter with your clients or your lenders to understand the why of your value in your transaction as to what's going to happen. But the Fed's too, too much liquidity for cap rates to go up. In fact, we're honestly seeing cap rates compress. I've seen in suburban multifamily and um, uh, really good logistics e-commerce warehouses, cap rates compressed by 50 to 100 basis points in the last 60 days. There's so much demand for those property types that's rotating out of industrial and, I mean, out of retail and hotel, um, that everybody is going to be chasing really multifamily and industrial. So I don't know if you want to stop there and debate Yeah, that. yeah, I want to debate that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're thinking that retail and hotel money is going to come to multifamily and you're already seeing evidence of cap rate compression in multifamily? We are. So mainly suburban, not so much urban. So like in New York, San Francisco, even downtown Denver, Atlanta, not seeing that. But when we go into the suburban markets, um, older class B properties, value opportunities, value enhancement opportunities. If people don't want to do public transportation, they don't want to be in dense environments. And if these class B and C properties can be anywhere close to amenities, a walking trail, a lake, a park, um, decent schools, um, the money is just it is pouring into those assets because if people can work remote, they don't want a one bedroom that's really expensive in the city. They want a larger two bedroom so they can have an office at home and they want to be in proximity to open space areas where they can get out and walk and exercise versus high density areas. So we're already seeing that whether it's in Atlanta or Charlotte or Raleigh or Dallas. Even in Houston, as you get out of downtown Houston and you go out to, say, Sugar Land or Fort Bend County, we're seeing those suburban multifamily do very, very well. And the same with um, industrial. Good. That must be really good news for a lot of people in this call, but that's good. Yeah. Yep. Okay. What about industrial? Is it because uh, it's expand, it's, uh, it's, it's doing well because of all the online things that's happening right now, I guess, right, due to COVID? It, it's, it's a number of reasons. So we've, moved at, we've accelerated everything online by about five years. So it's mm-hmm. not just stuff we bought in apparel in the mall, but now it's groceries. We were just starting in groceries with Whole Foods being acquired by Amazon and Walmart. Now every grocer is accelerated to it. Um, the, the Grocery Association reports now that about 25 to 30% of all grocery store sales are online and either click it and pick up or delivered. And that number six months ago was single digits, like 5%. So it's like a five to six fold increase. And it's by all age demographics, older, older demographics, young demographics, uh, moms, working moms, non-working moms. You know, just think about if you're doing remote learning in schools, you don't have as much time to go to the grocery store. We've all had to learn Zoom. We've all learned how to do everything online. We're very comfortable with it. So we've just accelerated everything, even buying a car, renting a car, uh, even getting my car repaired. So we just had to do it for my wife's car. And we, we went online and they came and picked the car up and they did all the repairs and brought it back, all sanitized. And it was uh, sealed in, a, in a, all the doors and windows were sealed with a wrapper and stuff around the seats after they sanitized it. So nobody had been uh, putting COVID in the car. So just everything yeah. we do today is, is, is there. 
what about the apartment classes between class A, you know, who are, you know, more people who are, you know, what are white collar, you know, workers where they can work from home, but, and also class B and C, which is more paycheck to paycheck workforce housing. I mean, do you see a difference in terms of, you know, because we had a, we have a global slowdown right now because this is impacting the whole world, right? So a lot of big companies, even though they may be having a slowdown soon, right? Uh, do you think that there's difference between class A and class B and C? I do. I think Class A is going to have less um, pricing power in rents going forward. Uh, we already had an affordability issue. We we're already bumping up in the ceiling um, where the B and C now is a value proposition. And I think if it's, there's going to be more demand for it. We're seeing it in single family housing too, as well as multifamily. So uh, what's interesting is in Class A, you're seeing a higher percentage of rent collection, but the lowest percentage of rent increase. Class B and C, you're seeing, if you if you factored in the rent forbearance, you're having more stress. In fact, right now, one in five apartment renters, so 20 million of our 110 million apartment renters in this country are in a rent forbearance program. And most of that is in the B and C product type, not so much the A. So uh, A will do fine without maybe the rent forbearance and they can work from Zoom and they're probably white collar or tech or professional jobs. But the B and C is going to be more stressed. They're more, you know, could be a, a banquet manager at a hotel. It could be a restaurant manager. So it's not all low income, um, but it's, um, you know, in those industries that are most affected. So I think B and C will see the most demand. They're going to, when we come out of rent forbearance and everybody has to pay their, their past due rent over the next year, and it's going to look like a 10 to 20% rent increase, um, nobody is going to have pricing power in rents for probably two years. Yeah, I just don't think people are going to pay back what they owe. I think they're just going to skip out and go to another apartment. That's I, I on, the gro- on the ground <laughs> information. Right? Yeah, so. I, I fear you're right. I think most property managers are, are doing that. That's why they're locking the gates at night so the U-Haul trucks can't sneak out. <laughs> <laughs> Follow the U-Haul truck indicator. Follow the U-Haul, yeah, not from state to state, from which apartment to which apartment, I guess. Yeah, see where they're, see where they're all going. So this is a good one here on 20. So this is one you, you'll probably like. I love this graphic on 21. You could really apply this graphic to any property type, but the National Apartment Association produced this a month or so ago, and it looks at where does a dollar of rent go. And so we all know the last portion of the dollar goes to the property owner because he's first got to pay the mortgage and the debt and the expenses and property taxes, insurance and operating. And um, and so if you think about what's happening, if you're in a loan forbearance because you're giving rent forbearance, your debt piece is going to go up. You know, your LTV is going up. What you're going to have to pay back is going to go up. Your operating expenses are going up to deal with COVID. Your tenant turnover costs are going up. Um, I've recently talked with and advised a couple of really large institutional owners of multifamily that own literally hundreds of thousands of units. And they said right now it's impossible to release an apartment unless you replace the carpet. And so think what that's done to tenant turnover costs because all the tenants think that COVID is lurking in the carpet. So if you now have to replace the carpet every time or you've got to decide to go in with a hard floor treatment and, and skip this carpet replacement every time, you've got higher tenant turnover costs. So you know, think about that graphic. The cap rate doesn't go up. Maybe it compresses a little bit, but the NOI goes down because you have more debt service. You have more operating expenses, more tenant turnover costs. You can't raise the rent. You're going to probably have a hit to the value. I think it's going to be worse for student housing, much better for workforce. The 138 college towns 
are just decimated with student housing. Even the universities have had a rebate monies the parents for their dormitory housing. Most student housing had two dollars two daughters that were in off-campus student housing. And um, when the president declared a national state of emergency, it triggered act of God clauses in most rents and most leases. And that meant that my daughters were eligible to cancel their lease the end of March and not have to pay through August. And that's exactly what they did as they moved home. So I think it's going to be really bad. I think suburbs are going to be the beneficiary. And we're already hearing this from the home builders in their public earnings. They're telling us where homes are selling and the biggest cohort of new home buyers is coming out of the city in class A multifamily. And like you said, they're skipping out. They're not telling their landlord. They're putting the money down. They have a job and DR Horton or whoever is glad to help them get financing and buy a house in the suburbs. So the home builders are telling us they're raiding the hell out of class A in the city and they're putting them into new homes. So um, I worry about that. Do you that. think all this will go away once we find vaccine in the next you know, six months? Will everything goes back to normal? It's going to take a while. I think we're, think about 9-11 and what we had to do, not only in terms of dealing with the risk of terrorism, but dealing with our psychology of travel and everything else. And it took about three years after 9-11 to set up Homeland Security and TSA and taking our shoes off in the airport. And I think we're going to go through something similar here. Um, I'm not going to be one of the first um, million or 10 million people to get a vaccine. I'm kind of comfortable with not traveling like the road warrior that I was. Um, I'm going to try to extend out more of this Zoom type work um, rather than having to be going to the airport, the world's most infected airport in Atlanta every week. <laughs> so I think it's going to take us about three years. And I think the thing that's going to get us there is what's called an immunity passport. So the clear system that some of your listeners may be familiar with originally was a technology for medical records technology. And that's where clear built itself. They have all of our medical records, but because of HIPAA laws, they can't share them. And I think what we end up with, it's already happening in Europe, um, in Germany and in, in, uh, Spain and Italy, is that in order to travel, in order to go out, in order to go to a, a soccer football game, you have to have an immunity passport. So you have to pass screening and testing that you don't have the virus that day and you can go attend. And I think that within three years, we will have a, I'm a diabetic, so I have a glucose monitor. I uh, do a finger prick stick and get my blood sugar tested. And it tells me if I'm good or bad or need to take insulin. We're gonna have something like that, that we pick up at our drugstore or grocery store It'll be a swab that'll test for certain antibodies or things like the new the new flu virus that's circulating. And it'll tell us whether we're good to go to work, whether we go to an airport, whether we go to a concert venue. And I think that within three years, we're going to wake up and we'll deal with macro public health, not just COVID, but all global macro stuff going forward by integrating our public health records and testing with our travel and our identity stuff. So that's where I think we ultimately get there. Uh, so anyway, slide 22 is one that's important. You asked about earlier about the apartments and FHFA and the, and the um, extension of rent for parents. So FHA last week announced that they knew that three months wasn't enough and they just extended it to six months. So think about that. 20, 20 million people out of our 110 million apartment renters are now not paying rent for six months instead of three months. And the number keeps growing. And when we get out six months, 12 months, um, they'll probably extend this, I think, again to 12 months, um, that they're going to find that they have a you know, 15, 20, 25% rent increase. And can they absorb that if uh, wages haven't moved or they're still unemployed or we still have over 10% unemployment? So this is the 
the bridge and we keep finding the bridge that we've been building is not long enough. And so we keep extending it and we still keep going further and further into debt. So are you saying the eviction moratorium which is supposed to expire, I think, the end of two July. Days, two days yeah, from now, right? That's exactly July right. 23. That's going to be extended? We already did it. They put the mandate out. It's extended another three months. So everybody that has a uh, federally guaranteed mortgage with FHFA, Freddie Fannie, um, yeah, they have to. I'm not aware they got extended, so they might, this must be news for me. Yeah, they. Uh, so uh, Mark Cal- Calabria publishes this. I put the link there. So mm-hmm. they've already they've already approved this. Um, okay. so I guess the news is going out to property owners and you know uh, those that have loans with FHFA. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I got to know like today, uh, City of Austin extended uh, their own eviction moratorium until September. So cities are already like doing it as well. Yeah, and if you've got an FHFA loan, Freddie or Fannie, you know, screw screw what the state or city is doing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they they tell you what you're going to do. So, um, and the other thing is, you know, these these even these evictions, you know, in Alabama, they just weren't enforcing them. So the the courts weren't open. The police were told not to enforce them. The governor, you know, just said don't don't enforce eviction orders. Don't evict people. So I think, like you said, we get later on and we get towards the holidays and all this stuff burns off. Are they really going to evict people? I I don't think so. I think people are going to skip out. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.